0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War Podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.
0: Hey, everyone. Before we get to the real start of the show, we have some exciting news that we wanted to share with y'all.
2: Yep. Uh, You see, ever since we had a couple of podcast t-shirts made for ourselves just for fun a while ago, we've had people asking us how they could get one, too. Well, now you can.
0: We've partnered with an online marketplace called Tee Public to sell podcast t-shirts and other merchandise. Tee Public has been around since 2013 and is used by many other podcasters, as well as hundreds of artists, to sell lots of products and not just t-shirts.
2: But also sweatshirts, coffee mugs, stickers, notebooks.
0: Even onesies.
2: Yeah, so... Anyway, we have several designs up already, and we're very excited to offer this as another way for you to support the podcast. We've already posted links to our Public storefront on Twitter and Facebook and on the podcast website, so as soon as you're done listening to this show, you can head over there and check out that podcast stuff.
0: And hey, if you're wearing one of our t-shirts while you're at a Civil War battlefield sometime, be sure to send us a photo.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 281 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the show.
2: As you guys will recall, in the last episode, Ulysses S. Grant had been advancing down the line of the Mississippi Central Railroad toward the Mississippi State capital of Jackson, threatening the Confederates' line of communication and supply with their position over at Vicksburg on the Mississippi River.
0: That's a lot of times to say the word Mississippi in one sentence.
2: Uh, it was, but, you know, there was no getting around it.
0: Okay. So anyway, as y'all know from listening to the last show, Grant's advance was derailed when a Confederate cavalry raid led by Earl Van Dorn destroyed the federal supply depot at Holly Springs. More Confederate cavalry led by Nathan Bedford Forrest had also wreaked havoc on Grant's supply lines in western Tennessee, which made it impossible for the Federals to quickly restock the depot at Holly Springs.
2: And so, with his logistics in disarray due to the rebel cavalry raids, Grant decided to withdraw from northern Mississippi. Meanwhile, though, the other part of Grant's two-pronged defensive was already underway as William Tecumseh Sherman took another Federal force down the Mississippi River from Memphis, and Grant, unfortunately, had no way to get word to Sherman and recall him. This was bad, because with Grant withdrawing and no longer a threat, the Confederate commander, John C. Pemberton, was free to shift his forces to meet another threat from another direction. What happened next was summed up tersely by Grant in his memoirs when he said, quote, Pemberton got back to Vicksburg before Sherman got there.
0: Sherman's Downriver expedition pulled away from Memphis on December 10, 1862. A soldier in the 69th Indiana said, quote, Just leaving the city and stretched out before me is one of the grandest spectacles to be seen.
2: He told of how, up and down the Mississippi River, as far as the eye could see, were steamboats, side-wheelers and stern-wheelers, quote, with colors flying and covered with men, all dressed in uniforms, and cheering each other as they pass.
0: He declared it to be, quote, a fitting sight for an artist's pencil."
2: Additional transports from Samuel Curtis's Department of the Missouri joined the expedition at Helena, Arkansas, raising Sherman's strength to about 32,000 men. South of Helena, the 60 transports caught up with the Navy's Mississippi Squadron, formerly known as the Western Flotilla. The new commander of this eclectic mix of ironclads, tinclads, timberclads, mortar boats, hospital ships, and supply boats was acting Rear Admiral David Dixon Porter.
0: When he took over from Flag Officer Charles Davis, Porter found the vessels and their crews worn down by months of campaigning in the subtropical climate. Porter's first priority, therefore, was to get both men and ships back into fighting trim.
2: He commandeered hotels, evicted the guests, and established hospitals for ill sailors. He refitted existing gunboats with additional armor, heavier cannon, and improved equipment, and ordered the construction of dozens of tinclads, which were lightly armored steamboats that could operate in very shallow water.
0: Porter worked tirelessly, ignored bureaucratic procedures, bullied uncooperative contractors and suppliers, and generally did whatever he had to do in order to get things done. And it worked. By December 1862, the Mississippi squadron was in better condition than at any other time during the war.
2: Amid these preparations for what he was certain would be a sustained campaign against Vicksburg, Porter met with Grant and Sherman. The three officers quickly established an effective working relationship, which was fortunate for the Union since it would take a combined Army-Navy effort to capture Vicksburg, and so the fact that Grant, Porter, and Sherman hit it off was of vital importance.
0: When Sherman asked Porter to explore the Yazoo River and locate a suitable landing site for the Army near Haynes Bluff, the Admiral was agreeable. And so on December 12, Captain Henry Walk sent a small flotilla up the Yazoo in search of mines and other obstructions.
2: Disaster struck a short distance above the mouth of Chickasaw Bayou when the city-class ironclad USS Cairo hit two mines, and settled to the bottom of the river. No lives were lost, but the operation was called off, and the rest of the flotilla withdrew downstream to the Mississippi River. Walk's unsuccessful reconnaissance in force was an unpromising start to Sherman's expedition. Not only did it cost Porter one of his trusty Turtles but it also alerted the Confederates to the fact that the Yankees were interested in the Yazoo.
0: A week after the loss of Cairo, Sherman was on his way down the Mississippi River with half of the Army of the Tennessee. His state of mind is something of a mystery. After all, Sherman knew of Van Dorn's raid on Holly Springs and must have realized Grant's overland movement had suffered a serious, perhaps even fatal, logistical setback.
2: But Sherman proceeded as if Grant would continue to advance down the Mississippi Central Railroad and fix Pemberton in place at Grenada as planned. He also assumed that the rebel commander was unaware of the hastily mounted amphibious expedition. Sherman, however, was wrong on both counts.
0: Between December 21st and 24th, Pemberton received repeated warnings that a large Union Army-Navy force was moving down the Mississippi, but he didn't know where the attack would come. That critical information arrived at the last possible moment and in the most dramatic way imaginable.
2: That's because as darkness fell on Christmas Eve, a Confederate Army telegrapher named L. L. Daniel stood atop a levee near Lake Providence, Louisiana, and watched a massive convoy churn down the Mississippi past his position. The vessels were steaming in column with their running lights aglow and were obviously headed for Vicksburg, just 60 miles downstream.
0: Daniel rushed to his telegraph station. Minutes later, the news reached Philip H. Fall, another Army telegraph operator, who was stationed at DeSoto Point, across from Vicksburg. Fall commandeered a rowboat and braved strong winds and choppy water to cross the river in the darkness.
2: After reaching Vicksburg, Fall burst into Dr. William Balfour's splendid hilltop home, where a Christmas Eve ball attended by Brigadier General Martin Smith and many of his officers, was in progress. Remember, Smith was the engineer in charge of Vicksburg's defenses. Upon being told of the sighting, Smith informed the crowd, This ball is at an end. The enemy are coming down the river.
0: Party goers gathered up their hats and coats and hurried out into the night, civilians to their homes, officers to their posts.
2: On Christmas Day, the Union Armada tied up along the Louisiana shore west of DeSoto Point and landed elements of Brigadier General Anders Smith's and Brigadier General Morgan Smith's divisions. The Federals marched inland and wrecked a section of the Vicksburg, Shreveport, and Texas Railroad that ran between Vicksburg and Monroe, Louisiana. While this expedition was in progress. Sherman received the bad news that the Yazoo River was mined above the mouth of Chickasaw Bayou. That meant a landing at Haines Bluff was no longer possible. Disappointed at this unexpected development, Sherman nevertheless was determined to press ahead with his original plan and put his troops ashore on high ground somewhere north of Vicksburg. Now, the most likely place for a landing and attack was the Walnut Hills, a section of the escarpment located between Haines Bluff and Vicksburg. With Sherman having made his decision, the Union Armada pulled away from DeSoto Point on December 26th and turned into the Yazoo.
0: If we hit the rewind button for a moment, we find that on December nineteenth, 1862, Jefferson Davis had arrived in Vicksburg midway through a tour of the Western Confederacy. The trip was intended partly to raise civilian morale and partly to allow Davis to see for himself how matters stood a thousand miles west of Richmond.
2: The Confederate president was anxious about the fate of Vicksburg as well as that of Briarfield, his plantation on Davis Bend, a short distance downriver. No doubt he would have been even more anxious if he'd known that Sherman was about to depart Memphis and begin his descent of the Mississippi the very next day.
0: Davis was accompanied by General Joseph E. Johnston, whom he'd recently selected to head the Department of the West an overarching command that took in all Confederate military forces between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. There had been no overall guiding hand in the West since Albert Sidney Johnston's death at Shiloh nine months earlier, and Davis hoped, in vain, as it turned out, that Joe Johnston would provide sorely needed direction and coordination.
2: After inspecting the Vicksburg defenses, Davis and Johnston traveled to Grenada to meet with Pemberton. The three men discussed ways to bolster Pemberton's ranks with troops from other Confederate armies. There were two possible sources of additional manpower, Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee and Lieutenant General Theophilus Holmes' Army of the Trans-Mississippi over west of the Great River.
0: A few days earlier, Davis had directed Johnston to transfer Major General Carter Stevenson's division from Tennessee to Mississippi. That force of about 10,000 rebel troops was en route to Vicksburg over the South's rickety and roundabout rail system, even while the conference at Grenada was underway. But only a portion of Stevenson's division would reach Vicksburg in time to confront Sherman.
2: And just a side note. But Stevenson's transfer to Mississippi couldn't have come at a worse time for Bragg, since it ended up meaning that Braxton Bragg would fight the Battle of Stones River at the end of December with a drastically reduced command. Had Stevenson's 10,000 men been present, Stones River might well have been a Confederate victory.
0: At any rate, Stone's River was still in the future at the time of the conference at Grenada. But nevertheless, Johnston and Bragg still opposed any further reduction in strength of Bragg's army. And so that meant any additional reinforcements for Pemberton would have to come from the Trans-Mississippi. But there were problems with making that a reality.
2: That was because the Mississippi River was a dividing line between Confederate departments. Neither Johnston nor Pemberton could call on Theophilus Holmes for help since their authority ended at the river's edge. Jefferson Davis didn't hesitate to order Bragg to rush a division from Tennessee to Pemberton, but throughout the lengthy struggle for Vicksburg, the Confederate president would merely ask Holmes to send whatever force he could spare.
0: When Holmes said that things in Arkansas were at a critical stage and refused to part with a single soldier, Davis didn't press him. And when Holmes said that the state of affairs in Arkansas was perilous and he couldn't send reinforcements to Pemberton, he wasn't exaggerating. His department was in real danger of being overrun by federal forces.
2: On December seventh, 1862, Holmes' principal field army, commanded by Thomas Hindman, was wrecked at the Battle of Prairie Grove in northwest Arkansas. This calamity left Holmes' western flank wide open to the Yankees, who promptly swept down to the Arkansas River. Meanwhile, his eastern flank was endangered by the Union presence at Helena and increased enemy naval activity on the Mississippi River. Under the circumstances, Holmes couldn't assist Pemberton without effectively abandoning Arkansas to the Federals. And politically, for the Confederates, that was an extremely sensitive matter.
0: That's because Arkansas had already been abandoned once by the Confederacy, and it was unlikely that the state's citizens and soldiers would stand for it to happen a second time. You see, in April eighteen sixty two following the Confederate defeat at Pea Ridge, Van Dorn had moved his army from Arkansas across the river to Mississippi to join the Confederate troop concentration prior to the Battle of Shiloh. Van Dorn and his troops actually missed the battle, but at any rate
2: at any rate, acting under his own authority, Van Dorn took with him all the arms, munitions, machinery stores, wagons, animals, and steamboats he could lay his hands on in Arkansas, Missouri, northern Louisiana, and the Indian Territory. Political leaders in every corner of the Confederate Trans-Mississippi raised a howl of outrage. Nowhere was public confidence more deeply shaken than in Arkansas, where Governor Henry Rector threatened to secede from the Confederacy unless his state was defended.
0: And so the new Confederate Department of the Trans-Mississippi was created. A makeshift rebel army was cobbled together in Arkansas, and the political crisis eased. But thereafter, Confederate forces in the Trans-Mississippi would not could not be transferred eastward without the approval of the department commander and the consent of local political leaders.
2: The military situation in Louisiana, while not so politically sensitive, was even less promising. A small Confederate army led by the very capable Major General Richard Taylor harassed Union occupation forces in southern Louisiana but it was too weak and too far away from Vicksburg to be of much help. The rest of Louisiana was practically defenseless. Barely a corporal's guard of Confederate soldiers could be found north of Alexandria.
0: Van Dorn's abandonment of the Trans-Mississippi in the spring of 1862 was the logical culmination of the Confederate policy of draining manpower and resources from the states west of the Mississippi River in order to bolster rebel armies in Virginia, Tennessee, and Mississippi. However, by the end of 1862, that policy had run its course and was no longer politically feasible for the Confederacy. That meant Pemberton would have to make do with what he had.
2: While playing host to Jefferson Davis and Joe Johnston in Grenada, Pemberton learned that Grant was falling back in the aftermath of Van Dorn's raid on Holly Springs. He also received the news that Sherman was moving down the Mississippi, for late on the night of December 24th, a telegram arrived at Grenada with the shocking news that Sherman was only hours away from Vicksburg.
0: Just as Grant feared he would, Pemberton immediately began to shift troops from Grenada to Vicksburg using the railroad. As each contingent of rebel soldiers rattled into the city, Martin Smith hurried them north to fill the gap between Haynes Bluff and Vicksburg. It seemed fairly obvious to him that with the Yazoo River blocked by mines above Chickasaw Bayou, the Federals had little choice but to land and advance toward the Walnut Hills.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. Sherman's decision to strike at the Walnut Hills instead of Haines Bluff probably was the correct one, but every course of action open to him was fraught with immense difficulties. The land along the lower Yazoo River was wooded, low, and usually wet. In the mid-nineteenth century, it was laced by meandering streams and dotted with bogs and shallow ponds. Clearings were few and far between. Put simply, it was a bad place to maneuver troops or fight a battle.
0: Sherman had hoped to steam up the Yazoo, land his army at the foot of Haines Bluff, and quickly seize the high ground from the few rebel defenders. But an attack against the Walnut Hills was an altogether different proposition. For one thing, just marching from the alternate landing site along Chickasaw Bayou to the foot of the heights involved slogging through a truly dismal swamp. Nonetheless, Sherman was optimistic that he could reach the bluffs before the enemy barred his path.
2: The Walnut Hills were neither fortified nor occupied on December 26th when the Federals approached Chickasaw Bayou, but that soon changed. The terrain here presented the Confederates with significant tactical advantages. The primary line of defense would be along a terrace or shelf that runs along the base of the bluffs. Its western face rises ten or twenty feet above the swampy lowlands. The upper portion of Chickasaw Bayou meanders directly below the terrace for much of its length. This combination of a natural parapet and moat formed an almost insurmountable barrier to an attacking force.
0: Running along the terrace and atop the bluffs were two parallel roads that connected Vicksburg and Haines Bluff. These roads permitted the Confederate defenders to move laterally to any threatened point along the escarpment. When all of this is taken into account, you can only say that Sherman would have had to search long and hard to find a less promising spot to make an assault.
2: Pemberton accompanied Jefferson Davis to the state capital of Jackson and saw him off, likely with a sigh of relief. Then he continued on to Vicksburg, where he demonstrated his peculiar, hands-off style of command.
0: Pemberton permitted Martin Smith to remain in overall command of the rapidly unfolding tactical situation. However, Smith knew his limitations and so assigned responsibility for defense of the Walnut Hills to Brigadier General Stephen D. Lee, a West Point graduate recently transferred from the Army of Northern Virginia.
2: Lee had fewer than 3,000 men on December 26th, but over the next three days, troops trickled in by rail from Pemberton's main force at Grenada and Bragg's Army in Tennessee by the time Sherman launched his final assault on December 29th, the Confederate defenders numbered about 6,000 men.
0: Lee immediately put his troops to work clearing fields of fire and constructing rifle pits, trenches, and artillery redoubts to cover the most likely avenues of approach. To buy as much time as possible, he sent a substantial force down into the bottomlands to harass and delay the Federals.
2: Between December 26th and 28th, Sherman's 32,000 federal troops disembarked from their transports and slowly pushed through the swampy bottomlands toward the Walnut Hills. Skirmishes, some approaching the intensity of small battles, erupted with increasing frequency as the Yankees forced the Confederates back. The leading Union regiments were only a few hundred yards from the main Rebel fortifications by nightfall on December twenty-eighth, Sherman ordered a general attack for the next day.
0: Brigadier General George Morgan, a senior Federal Division commander, was dismayed at the obstructed approaches to the Confederate position and the existence of only a single rickety bridge across Chickasaw Bayou. However, when he expressed his doubts about the wisdom of a head-on-attack, Sherman snapped that, quote, We will lose 5,000 men taking Vicksburg, and may as well lose them here as anywhere else.
1: Hmm.
2: Well, that was an unfortunate remark that would haunt Sherman, who all too often said or wrote exactly what he was thinking. In the end, Morgan gave the order to go forward, though under protest. He was not the only federal officer who was appalled by what was about to happen. Colonel John de Courcy asked, General, do I understand that you are about to order an assault? When Morgan said yes, de Courcy, giving voice to his doubts, said, My poor brigade!
0: After an artillery bombardment that had little effect on the entrenched rebel defenders, the Federal Infantry advanced just before noon on December twenty ninth. The fighting was most severe on the Union left, where parts of three brigades led by Brigadier Generals Frank Blair and John Thayer and Colonel Courcy struggled across Chickasaw Bayou and established a shallow bridgehead at the base of the terrace.
2: One regiment, Colonel James Williamson's 4th Iowa, actually managed to capture an outlying section of the Confederate earthworks, but the Federals eventually were driven back across the bayou. Morgan watched helplessly as his men were, quote, mowed down by a storm of shells, grape and canister, and mini-balls, which swept our front like a hurricane of fire. The assault, he later wrote, quote, was as valiant as it was hopeless. As for de Courcy, his premonition of disaster was correct. His brigade suffered by far the heaviest casualties among the attackers.
0: A short distance to the right, a force made up of Colonel Daniel Lindsay's and Colonel Lionel Sheldon's brigades of Federals, approached Chickasaw Bayou, but didn't attempt to cross. The Yankees traded musket fire with the entrenched Confederates for a time, then withdrew into the dense woods that covered the bottomlands.
2: Farther to the right, near the center of the Union line, Colonel Giles Smith's brigade performed in a similar fashion. Only the men of Lieutenant Colonel James Bloods, 6th Missouri, showed the kind of grit that might have carried the day for the Federals. The Missourians waded across the bayou, but were unable to advance any farther because of intense rebel fire, And complete lack of support. They huddled under the shelter of the east bank until nightfall, then returned to their own lines.
0: The attacking force on the right of the Union line, led by Brigadier General Andrew Smith, withdrew after failing to penetrate a barrier of felled trees.
2: Sherman's assault had been a complete failure. Darkness brought drenching rain and plummeting temperatures. Sergeant Paul Reichhelm of the Third Missouri recalled quote, "A night commenced such as God forbid I may never live through again before leaving the riverbank. We had been ordered to leave everything behind which could impede our movements in any way, thus, blankets, oilcloth, haversack, canteen, and even overcoats had been left and here we stood with nothing on our bodies but the thin blouse and pants, exposed to the merciless cold and howling storm. The rain did not stop until morning. The storm raged with unbroken fury, and when daylight at last dawned upon the pitiful scene, we found ourselves in a swamp, every inch of which stood under water, stiff blue and teeth rattling, scarcely able to walk, and many totally unable to speak.
0: No one knows how many wounded Federals perished during that horrible night. Sherman wisely decided not to renew the attack on December 30th. He later insisted that the troops were in good spirits and ready for another go at the rebels, but nothing could have been further from the truth.
2: Casting about for some way to retrieve the situation, Sherman returned to his original idea of a landing at Haynes Bluff. He was encouraged when Porter informed him that a solution to the problem of the mines in the Yazoo River had been found. Alfred Ellett had fashioned a huge wooden rake that extended over the bow of one of his rams, the lioness. As the device swept through the water, it detonated or dislodged the mines in the ram's path. This made the Lioness the world's first minesweeper.
0: Perhaps a belated thrust at Haines Bluff would have succeeded, though it seems likely the Confederates, fully alert and growing more numerous every day, could have countered a landing simply by shifting troops northward to match Sherman's progress upriver.
2: At any rate, no one will ever know what might have happened, because on the morning of December 31st, A dense fog blanketed the bottomlands. Porter's vessels couldn't move, and the next day rain fell in torrents. With the weather against him, Sherman gave up and ordered a withdrawal. Thousands of wet, cold, and demoralized Federal soldiers crowded back aboard their transports and returned down the Yazoo to the Mississippi River.
0: In a letter to his wife, Sherman confessed, Well, we have been to Vicksburg and it was too much for us and we have backed out.
2: The clash along the muddy banks of Chickasaw Bayou was a costly affair. The butcher's bill for the Federals was 208 men killed. One thousand and five wounded and five hundred and sixty three missing for a total of one thousand seven hundred and seventy six casualties, eighty per cent of those casualties, one thousand four hundred and thirty nine men, fell in the assault on december twenty ninth and most of them belonged to Morgan's division, especially de Courcy's brigade.
0: Confederate losses were far, far lower. Just 187 killed, wounded, and missing.
2: Sherman, of course, deserved most of the blame for the Union defeat. Somehow, despite evidence to the contrary, he convinced himself that Grant was continuing to advance on Pemberton at Grenada. And after rushing away from Memphis and tearing down the Mississippi, Sherman inexplicably shifted into a more measured mode of operations upon reaching Vicksburg. He wasted a day before entering the Yazoo, then allowed several more days to slip away while his men floundered around in the swamps. The attack, when it finally got underway, was a poorly organized frontal assault that had no realistic chance of success. Sherman may not have lost 5,000 men at Chickasaw Bayou, but it wasn't for lack of effort.
0: The federal repulse at Chickasaw Bayou was a dismal end to Sherman's first independent command and to Grant's hopes for a quick knockout blow against Vicksburg. Sherman didn't duck responsibility for the debacle, at least not immediately. He summed up the operation to Halleck by saying, I reached Vicksburg at the time appointed, landed, assaulted, and failed.
2: However, in his post-war memoirs, Sherman attempted to shift much of the blame for the defeat at Chickasaw Bayou to his subordinates, particularly George Morgan.
0: The Confederates, naturally, were overjoyed at the outcome of the battle. Nearly everyone on the rebel side performed capably. Pemberton acted decisively to shift troops to meet the threat to Vicksburg. Smith hurried men to the right spot once they arrived. Lee handled the tactical situation admirably, and regimental commanders demonstrated pluck and initiative.
2: The only negative aspect of the Confederate victory was that it focused Pemberton's attention on the area north of Vicksburg, and confirmed his belief that a static defense, that is the strategy of manning fixed defensive positions, was the correct approach to holding the
0: place. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is William Tecumseh Sherman in the Service of My Country by James Lee McDonough.
2: We haven't really talked about Sherman's life in much detail on the podcast yet, but if you want to learn more about the life of a fascinating man who will end up being one of the major figures in the Civil War, then this is one of the biographies we'd recommend.
0: You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website at www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Twitter feed, and to our Facebook page, and to our Tea Public Storefront, and to Patreon.
2: And speaking of Patreon, but just yesterday we released Members' Episode number 88 for the folks in the Strawfoot Brigade. It's the first episode in what will be an extended look at the Holly Springs Raid.
0: And we wanted to say thank you to the newest members who signed on this past week over on Patreon. So thank you to Anthony, Rose, John, and Eric.
2: Michael, Sean, Paul, Susan, and James.
0: Lark, and Mike, and Clayton. Douglas, Jeremy, and John C.
2: John D., And last but not least, George. We also want to say thank you to David, Timothy, and Richard for their donations this past week. And those generous donations are going right into our Gettysburg Fund for our trip.
0: And then as we wrap up this show, we'd like to remind you that the lovely music you hear at the beginning and end of each and every episode of the podcast is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music.
2: And we thank them for that. Okay, so thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.